This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Inujia-Dean. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd. Coming up, how some Mexican-American families are carrying on a Christmas culinary tradition in Kansas City. Plus, what it's like to work in mental health during the pandemic. But first, some headlines. Cases of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 are being reported in the Kansas City area, while hospitals warn that they're already at capacity. KCUR's Carlos Moreno has more. According to the Mid-America Regional Council, an average of 820 new COVID cases are being reported every day in the metro, and 158 people are being hospitalized. Dr. Mark Steele of University Health says their current caseload of coronavirus patients is six times higher than it was just three weeks ago. The current surge is being fueled by the Delta variant, but the emerging Omicron variant is catching on quick, most recently infecting two fully vaccinated people in Wyandotte County. So there clearly is a shift that's taking place, and I feel certain that it'll become the dominant variant here in the very near future. On average, COVID-19 is killing five people every day in the Kansas City region. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Carlos Moreno. The Governor's Commission on Racial Equality and Justice in Kansas is calling for the end of Native American mascots in schools and sports teams, an expansion of Medicaid, and increased access to contraceptives. Blaze Mesa of the Kansas News Service reports on the group, whose members include educators and elected officials. The commission offered recommendations on policing in 2020, but released dozens of new recommendations in its latest report. Those were increasing vaccine equity, diversifying workforces, and not allowing police school resource officers to discipline students. The 100-page report focused on social determinants of health. It proposed changes to child care, education policy, and tax policy. The recommendations aim to help state and local governments consider new legislation. For the Kansas News Service, I am Blaise Mesa in Topeka. Few foods have such devoted followings as tamales, especially among Latinos. And Christmas time is tamale time in Mexico, Central America, and Kansas City for many Mexican-American families. KCUR's Luke Martin gives us the gift of tamale tradition. Tamales have been a part of many Abarca's life since he was a kid. His family has been making them for at least four generations. Before the pandemic, they sometimes cranked out thousands between Christmas and New Year's. Tamales even helped Abarca connect with his fiancée. Randomly, I get this message last year after I posted a picture saying, hey, you know, I'm making tamales. And she said, hey, I've had your tamales before. I know what I'm getting. I want your tamales. Abarca is a Kansas City Public Schools board member. Over the years, he's gotten used to texts and social media messages from people looking to score some tamales. If you want some, I I got the connection, and it almost feels kind of like drug dealing. I don't know what that's like, but people are like, oh, man, you got some. Like, can I get some? And I'm like, yeah, they're just tamales. Tamales have been around for thousands of years. And because I knew this story would get my appetite up, I went to Elvira's Cakes in Kansas City's northeast neighborhood to get my own. Starting from the inside of the tamale, there's the filling, which can vary from region to region. Here's Elvira's manager, Jessica R. So we have five different types. The first one would be the chicken with the green salsa. Second one would be pork with the red salsa. Third one would be the peppers with cheese. And then a sweet one with raisins and then the corn tamale. The masa makes up the bulk of most tamales. It's made from corn or maize soaked in lime and water and ground up. Add water and the juice from the cooked meat, and it turns into a soft, fragrant dough. 
holding everything in is the hoja, usually banana leaf or corn husk. This part you don't eat, but you should soak overnight so it's pliable enough to wrap without cracking. Christy Moreno grew up in Mexico City, making tamales next to her great-grandmother, who made a good living of it. One of the beautiful things about tamales is that usually it's a family process or it's, a t it's teamwork, right? Very rarely will you find someone that's going through the whole process alone. Moreno is an educational advocate and interpreter for Latino families around Kansas City. And in that process, I have met a lot of just powerful entrepreneurial women who lean into, you know, their, the heritage of, of cooking to be able to provide uh, additional income. So Moreno uses her wide network to help sell their tamales. They're ancestral. They're a sacred food item that was presented to the gods. It remains a very solid and strong tradition that is shared across cultures, across borders and barriers and languages and identities. Marisa Jean Corelli first moved to Kansas City from Mexico in 2005. Now she owns Yoli Tortilleria with her husband. During the fall and winter, her shop takes tamale orders too. It's almost like a little warm gift. You open it up and it's just a really nice way to just feel the hugs of the family. I, I don't know, it sounds weird, but it, it's it really is. Jean Corelli's earliest memories of tamales involve her grandma Panchita, a successful tamalera and business owner. Regardless of your economic status, tamales is always very achievable. You're using your corn masa, sometimes you have a little bit of filling, sometimes you don't have any filling, and that's totally okay, and beans and vamonos, you know, like you're good. The celebrations for many Catholic Latinos begin with the Feast of the Virgin of Guadalupe on December 12th and continue through early January. That means it's crunch time for Elvira's manager, Jessica. Yeah, right now, next week for Christmas, Christmas Eve, New Year's, and then following January, yeah. After that, orders tend to shrink, but Jessica says they still make tamales fresh every day, all year long, and they usually sell out. Taking a tamale break for the team, I'm Luke Martin for KCUR 89.3. Coming up, why one Kansas City therapist says the pandemic will increase the number of people seeking mental health treatment. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This is Kansas City Today. UMB Private Wealth Management is a division of UMB Bank that tailors financial planning services to help you maximize your assets and protect your legacy. Everything we do starts with you because there is no one-size-fits-all financial planning strategy. Your UMB experience begins with us taking the time to get to know you and understand your financial goals. Then we customize a detailed yet flexible plan that helps you achieve them. At UMB, your story is always our focus. Learn more at umb.com slash wealth hyphen management.
This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today, we have another interview with a Kansas City resident about this second year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I spoke to Mercedes Mora, a clinical supervisor and counselor at the Guadalupe Centers, which serve Latinos in Kansas City. She's been a mental health care provider throughout the pandemic, and one of the biggest changes for her was switching to virtual therapy. She's joining me now over Zoom to tell me how her year has gone. Hi, Mercedes. Hello. So how has this year been for you? Very challenging, to say the least. As far as our program um, is concerned, which is a bilingual outpatient treatment program, um, there were a lot of challenges um, with respect to how we were con- how we still are conducting our sessions virtually um, and the social distancing. One of the issues is that therapy and counseling have a lot to do with uh, body language. And because they're either virtual and or with face masks, that that part was very challenging. So it's more difficult to read your participants' um, body language, which is a great part of therapy. So how many people are still doing virtual therapy versus in-person therapy? So today, uh, now we are doing a combination. So we're seeing participants a lot more in person. Um, We are still not doing group. We've decided that um, we're going to hold off on group sessions live. Um, And virtually groups, um, we decided we're not working out because of reassuring all participants that each of them were in a confidential setting. Now that we're seeing more people back in the office with social distancing, it's improving. I think 2022, if things continue to um, improve, get better as far as the pandemic, um, we should be able to see more in person than virtual. So one participant may do one virtual session per week, and maybe another in person. So how has the pandemic changed people's mental health? I think it's increased co-occurring disorders um, significantly. Um, Initially during the shutdown, we had a captured audience because no one was working, everybody was at home. So initially it started out rough on the tech side, but um, but they were logging in. They were being compliant as best as they could. As, as the pandemic progressed and cases increased and um, jobs were lost and income was lost, especially among our target population, of so many of them weren't eligible for assistance, financial assistance, because of lack of social security numbers, for example. Uh, the stress levels became higher, co-occurring disorders began to uh, become um, present, such as anxiety, stress, uh, depression. And because of those, a combination of that and use, there were a lot more relapses with uh, their substance use disorders, even though they had been making progress prior to the pandemic. Have you seen a change in the number of people seeking mental health treatment in the past year? I've seen a change in the need for it. I know that other agencies we collaborate with are overwhelmed as far as numbers are concerned. 
It makes it difficult for me to refer participants uh, demonstrating co-occurring um, disorder symptoms. That and, and then with us, you add the language barrier on top of everything else and the, the lack of health insurance. So um, yes, I've seen, I've seen a change in the need for it. I don't know how to, I should say, define whether more people are accessing it. We sure are referring, but um, I don't know how well that is going as of now. I think we'll see more evidence of whether people are seeking mental health um, therapy in, in, the, in the next year. Why is that? Because I think we'll be seeing people in person more frequently. And so we'll be uh, able to do more case management and community support for those participants needing it and we'll be able to track it better. How has all of this affected you emotionally? You know, you try as a counselor, I think every counselor should have a counselor um, and um, address our own mental health well-being. Um, but it's been very challenging. For me personally, I've been impacted both um, emotionally, um, just to see the cases and, you know, to take it home with you. Um, uh, just to worry so much, to stress out so much. Um, you try to process and apply what you know in this field to yourself. Um, but it, it has been, I'll be honest with you, very, very difficult. Um, and it brings down, um, it's increased my fatigue, mental and physical. Um, it's just <clears throat> something I'm overcoming as I as we start to get out of this. Mercedes Mora is a clinical supervisor and counselor at the Guadalupe Centers, which serve Latinos in Kansas City. Thanks, Mercedes. Thank you. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love, Lisa Rodriguez, and Trevor Grandin, and edited by Gabe Rosenberg. For more local news stories, visit kcur.org, where you can also hear a live stream of Kansas City's NPR station. If you like our show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, or give us a call at 816-235-8930 and leave us a voicemail with your thoughts. Tomorrow, we'll see how one local student is spreading West African food and culture in Kansas City. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.